0: Syrupy fake romance, coercive control, yuppies on the raz, a violent criminal, a slut-shaming stalker, and the worst genre ever invented in the history of recorded sound. Isn't pop music wonderful? So, just before we rebrand the podcast as Which Decade is Tops for Knitwear, where we look forward to discussing the relative merits of Jacquard Weaves versus Raglan Sleeves, Here is the Express Results Bulletin for episode 10. Hi, Nick. Hi, Paula. Hi, Trev. (laughs) Stole my joke. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. We are all Paul and Paula. Let's do this thing. In last place for this round, earning minus one points for the 1980s, it is High Life by Modern Romance. We'll start with the longest comment we've had this time from Alex, who says... You spoke about EDM putting you off the charts for a period of time. This sort of thing was my equivalent that sent me retreating to the new rock and roll of the ZX Spectrum for much of the mid 80s. There had always been shocking tunes or entire genres on top of the pops. But even as an 11 year old, I understood this. They were for the grannies or the mums or the weirdos or the girls but around this time, it dawned to my horror and disappointment that this sort of artificial sounding, overgroomed, soulless, plastic thing was taking over as the new mainstream chart music aimed at people like me. And I couldn't have been less interested. Top of the Pops was now presented as the sort of party that I'd never get invited to and would have hated if I had. And I specifically fixated on modern romance as the epitome of this plunging quality. Decades on, I'm slightly disappointed that I don't hate this as much as I remember hating this. But there's enough residual resentment in me to want to give it
1: a good kicking. It's a great comment. I mean, whilst I completely disagree with him, it kind of is proto EDM. It's made for the dance floor. And just 30 short years later, we would have EDM doing a similar thing. So I completely disagree. Oh, I think it's really well observed. And Alex was 11 when he decided he was over this whole top 40 charts thing.
0: 11!
2: If there was an overriding theme for these 10 episodes so far, I think overriding residual (laughs) resentment could be it, (laughs) frankly.
0: (laughs) Let's move on to Asta. If you remember, High Life was produced by the great legendary producer Tony Visconti. So Astor says, she lives in Canada, Tony Visconti was a guest speaker at Pop Montreal a few years back, and he spoke and answered audience questions for almost two hours without this collaboration ever being mentioned. No wonder, bland, boring porridge. While Malcolm the Break Doctor says, now I'm typically an 80s fan all the way, but this really is the lowest common denominator of 80s-like guff, there is a reason you never hear this played out. While James, centrist of sound, says, actually fairly inoffensive. I can think of some good records with that early 80s calypso sound, but the more I listen, the more it becomes clear that the road to Agadu lies ahead here.
1: (laughs) Good point.
2: That is fair. I'm cheered by other people who hitherto also love
0: the 80s finding this terrible. These are your people. Right, just scraping into the Met Zone by the skin of its teeth, we have Gonna Make You an Offer You Can't Refuse by Jimmy Helms for the 1970s. David says, They're all a bit meh and unworthy of comment, but if you told 15-year-old me when it came out that I'd be voted for Jimmy Helms as a clear winner, I'd have been disgusted with myself. Alex says, Third place, notwithstanding the startled karaoke performer realising it's in the wrong key for him, Falsetto. <laughs> James says, I barely noticed the lyrics at first. Everything just sounded off. Yes, it's a stylistics pastiche. But when something reaches for brilliance and completely misses, it's somehow worse than if they hadn't bothered. Jimmy's voice is all wrong too. The falsetto and the passion both feel completely unconvincing, even sinister. Then I read the lyrics. So it's a no from me here. While Mark says, not great. But I feel probably less sinister than you guys suggested. What's going on here is that a songwriter has taken the most popular line from the biggest film of the year and tried to build a song around it. And the result is, to me, a perfectly palatable bit of faux soul. That was a very interesting comment from Mark. It's something I think we all missed. The Godfather was the biggest hit of the last year at the cinema and it spawns a very famous line where Marlon Brando says, I'm going to make him an offer you can't refuse. Of course, that must have been the basis for the song. It also explains why
1: Jimmy Helms is photographed holding a gun on the sleeve. I'm still not entirely sure basing a love story around that lovable Murderous gangland rogue the godfather is like, hey baby, you know what you need in your life? Someone who's gonna kill a lot of people. Oh yeah, that's that's a lot healthier than what I thought you were doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, because when did that ever happen again in modern music? <laughs> anyway, in the upper reaches of the mech zone, we have represented the 1960s, hey Paula, from Paul and Paula. Only one voter placed this first. And that was Joris. Joris says, I love inoffensive twee, cheesy 50s stuff like this. It's interesting that they say 50s, not 60s, because it was actually technically 60s, but I do know what he means. Alex says, I've marked down the other wet early 60s singles in the series, but I genuinely didn't find this all that bad. It's sweetly sung, and the wedding chapel organ gives the arrangement some individuality. Perfect slowy to play at the school dance. While Ali says, Paula has a lovely voice, which I'd love to hear singing other songs. Just not this one. And Malcolm says, good grief, no. I'm glad I missed the early 60s because of this song. (laughs) So this means our oldest three decades are all in the bottom three. Our newest three decades are all in the top three. And that's the first time this has happened. Major moment. We have a numerical tie for the next two places, so I've broken the tie by looking at how many voters preferred one song over the other. This means that in third place, earning one point for the 2010s, it's I Could Be The One by Avicii versus Nicky Ramiro. James says, enjoyable bosh here from Avicii. To be honest, it would have been better with the vocals left out entirely. I am generally pro-EDM, but a lot of what Mike said made sense. I would say that there is a lot of variation within the genre, and the charts don't always represent it well. There is certainly a flattening in tone from a lot of modern EDM-ish pop music, but I would blame a lot of that on the vocalists and how they are used, rather than the genre as a whole. Malcolm says... Not my favourite of his tracks, but still very enjoyable. Also not the biggest fan of a lot of EDM, but poor lad taking the brunt of that EDM rant. Yeah. Ali says, oh, I like Ali's comments. You'll see why. Ali says, totally agree with you, Mike, about EDM. As a massive fan of dance music from the mid-90s until the late noughties, this is the first genre to turn me off. It feels to me that it strips out everything that made dance so special. The creativity, inclusivity, joy and happiness and leaves the worst bits, the commercialisation and standardisation. And not just to the music, with the nights themselves. It's telling that you don't see small clubs and pubs putting on EDM nights like you would with other dance subcultures like house, drum and bass, garage, etc. It's all stadium sized clubs with corporate VIP areas in expensive cities. Meanwhile, David says, I have no strong feelings about the genre. It's what tends to be playing at festivals when I'm in my tent trying to drop off. But discussing it without discussing how it relates to the listener's drug of choice seems a bit two-dimensional. Yeah, you see, David, thing is, I don't see EDM really as drugs music. I don't think it was constructed to enhance the effects of specific types of drugs. It's like Ali says, I think of it as music played in those shiny aspirational clubs with VIP areas and ridiculously expensive drinks, or else it's played at those blanded out corporate-style open-air events where American youth is obediently chugging brand-sponsored beers. If the music was druggier, it would work in a more immersive way, rather than constantly going for superficial hooks and drops. But my field research is somewhat lacking in this area, so I could be wrong, and I will happily
1: defer to you two. I think when you're talking about any dance music, I mean, not even dance music, let's disco, you know, take away drugs from the development of disco, it would have ended up a different beast completely. Going back northern Seoul, they were doing blueies and yellows. Yeah. So I think there is something to be said there, but it's such a difficult subject to cover. You could say as a throwaway soundbite, oh, EDM, the drug of choice is booze, but mm. I'm not sure that that's right because EDM, it's almost like the phrase woke where people don't actually know what it means. Mm. It's just a spectre. You know, EDM, electronic dance music it's meant to cover everything and then it's become a phrase that is associated with big drops and almost like the four to the floor equivalent of bro step but EDM does have smaller nights there's a donk scene that's absolutely massive that is essentially a a huge underground scene it's quite tongue-in-cheek and really really not at all po-faced and serious I think it's such a thing we could have 28 episodes on this and not scratch the surface.
0: I see the problem with genre definition because I wouldn't have put the Donk scene or all the various subgenres of music with core and step and things on the end. I wouldn't have called them EDM. Like for me, EDM is like a narrower genre, which Avicii
1: sits at the heart of possibly but when Avicii first came out Levels was more or less a straight house record uh you know it's quite a banging house record but you know he's only got to the more EDM stuff later on and then at the same time as he's doing those types of tunes he's doing the folk tinge stuff SOS couldn't call that EDM it's 105 beats a minute something like that it's hardly got a beat to it whatsoever so I get what you're saying one of the things I thought was interesting about your particular comments about EDM, Mike, is a knee-jerk reaction would be to say, oh, well, you're hardly the target demographic for EDM. But then, thinking about you specifically, Mike, (laughs) music that's aimed for people getting sweatier in nightclubs... I can't think of a more key demographic that you fall into. At age uh, irrespective, you are the key demographic <laughs> for EDM. I'm going to win you over to it.
2: I once tried to nod off at a festival while Queens of the Stone Age were playing. That was a fail.
0: Queens of the Stone Age are not EDM. The debate continues. No doubt people revived next time we have an EDM record coming up. Right then. In second place, on the tie break... Earning two points, for the two thousands we have Crimea River by Justin Timberlake. Mark says, "I think late nineties, early noughties R and B is one of the greatest eras in pop. Justin Timberlake was super canny about the people he chose to work with, and he got Timberland and the Neptunes at the peak of their powers. This is a stone cold classic for me, and it gets a let off for the crime of sharing a name with another great song. By the way, side note." Mary Wilson's version of Cry Me, A River, was actually in the charts this week, exactly 40 years ago. James says, a grudging point here. It is a good piece of music, despite the dodgy context. I find Timberland's heavy breathing sounds a bit off-putting. I would not choose to put this on, but it doesn't actively annoy me either. Ali says... I loved this song at the time, but it was ruined by the video and Justin Timberlake's continued weird obsession with referencing what was just a teenage romance. Considering what we know now about Britney, I don't think history will be kind to this song. Well, Astor says, what a major piece of waste this guy has been so many times through his life. It's not just Britney Spears and Janet Jackson either. And yet this is a full throttle stomp of a
1: breakup song. Damn. But I like the conflict there. That's good, yeah. Full spectrum. Hate this guy. Love that tune.
2: Hate this guy. Well, let's balance that out. Hate this guy. Hate this tune. There we go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Our clear winner of episode 10, well ahead of the rest of the pack, earning three points for the 1990s, is Informer by Snow. Malcolm loved it. He says, an unforgettable classic, even if I still can't understand a word of the patois. Ali says, as a tween at the time, the 1992 to 93 reggae revival will always have fond memories for me. I had no idea what he was saying then. And despite having the power of the Internet, I refuse to learn now. Fair dues. Mark says, ridiculous and yes, probably quite dodgy, but enduringly catchy. Absolutely the only white Canadian dancehall track anyone will ever need. But it defines a moment pretty well. While Asta from Canada says... I didn't even know he was a Canadian, but I knew twice as many lyrics as the rest of you. I can sing "Informer" and Licky Boom Boom Down. This is definitely a case of where lyrics ignorance is, if not bliss, at least enjoyable.
2: I have some feedback on this. So Trev asked me to go and research whether any other songs had the phrase, look up me bottom. Um, <laughs> and the only thing I could find without Google searches that were likely to get the law involved, was a weird Al Jankovic parody of U2's hold me, thrill me, kiss me, kill me, called Cavity Search. Oh, God!
0: There actually is one! Well done!
2: That is pretty much all I could find on that topic without going any deeper into the lyrical search engines, yes.
1: So when we put together our Man of War, Man to Man, Paris... Tribute act, uh, we are going to try and work in lyrics about looking at my bottom, which I think would cover quite a large section of the man to man audience and the man of war audience as well, and in different contexts. I think that's a solid win. This could be where the two genres intersect. (laughs) You have a point,
0: right? Now, at this point in our results bulletins, I usually give you an update on the state of the master scoreboard, however. This bulletin is different because it marks the end of season one of the podcast. This means that before we get cracking with season two, our next episode will examine the final state of the Master Scoreboard from round one. And we'll be looking back at the highlights and lowlights of the shows thus far and attempting to come to some conclusions about what it all means. So we look forward to seeing you then very shortly. Bye for now.